Hello, and welcome to a special edition of the Salt and Light Hour. I'm Deacon Pedro. In 2015, the Supreme Court of Canada changed the criminal code, effectively legalizing medically-assisted dying. They gave the government one year to change the law. That deadline is on June 6, 2016. As we try to understand what this all means and how we, as people of life, can respond, I did a series of interviews while in Edmonton, Alberta, as part of a series titled Every Life Matters, hosted by Edmonton's Archbishop Richard Smith. Today, I'd like to share with you two of these conversations. The first is with lawyer Kate Fott. Kate explains what the current law is and what the proposed changes are. After speaking with Kate, we speak with disability rights activist Mark Pickup, who has some very passionate things to say about the whole mentality of a law that allows for euthanasia and assisted suicide. Remember that you can always listen to all our programs at our website, saltandlighttv.org slash radio, and you can always comment by reaching me via Facebook or Twitter at Deacon Pedro GM. We begin now with lawyer Kate Fought. Many of you might not be totally aware of this, but our legal landscape in this country, in Canada, is changing. The criminal code is being changed to include what is being called medically assisted dying. But what does that mean? What does the criminal code currently say? What are the proposed changes? How did we even get here? To answer some of those questions and some others, I'm now joined by a lawyer here in Edmonton, Kate Fott. Thank you, Kate, for helping us kind of <laughs> unpack this a little bit. Um, well, maybe we should start with what, what is the current law in Canada? What, is it, what does the law say about people killing other people or committing suicide? Well, uh, we're in somewhat of a kind of no man's land here for the next couple of months at least. Um, in February of 2015, the Supreme Court released their decision in a court case called Carter in Canada. Um, and in that case, um, two sections of our criminal code which um, make it illegal to assist or coerce someone into killing mm -hmm. themselves uh, by either providing means or knowledge of how to kill oneself. Um, those two provisions were um, found to be unconstitutional uh, insofar as they relate to a physician assisting the suicide uh, by our Supreme Court. Um, when the Supreme Court issued their decision uh, on, in that case in February of 2015, mm -hmm. um, I think properly they realized that that was a significant shift and they needed to give government some time to respond. So they um, uh, suspended the operation of their decision uh, for one year. So that meant that for, um, until February 6, yeah. 2016, the law, the criminal code provisions stayed in place as they always had been uh, with the understanding that this was coming down the pipe in 2016. Can I just interrupt you for a second? And there might be, I mean, I think most Canadians don't really even understand how this works, but people outside of Canada might not. How is it that the courts, because it sounds like we're changing the law here, so the courts are telling the government what to change the law. That's how it works. Yep, so all laws in Canada are subject to the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which is a part of our Constitution. Okay. Every law in Canada, whether it's a federal law, such as the Criminal Code, or any provincial laws passed by any provincial governments, okay. have to comply with our Constitution and therefore with our Charter. Right. If any laws um, are passed that uh, the courts find come offside or violate your rights under the Charter or any element of the Constitution, mm -hmm those laws are invalid. And so that's what happened here with our Supreme Court of Canada and the two provisions from our criminal code. Right. There was um, a court case brought that challenged, um, it, challenged those yeah. two sections and the court this time did find that they were um, in violation of Canadians' rights under the charter. Interesting, so then the court gave the government, in fairness, a year or a little bit more than a year to sort of figure out what they were gonna do. Yeah, they gave the, gov the governments one year, <laughs> and the governments, um, actually, the federal government uh, brought an application that was heard in January okay. of 2016, so um, asking for another six months, um, especially given that there so had been a, a change in yes. government. Yes. Um, that uh, So they were asking for six months. The court would not give them the six months. They gave them all governments four months okay. additional. 
Um, so that time period is up in Jan, uh, June, on in June, June 6th. June 6th, 2016. That's right. And, and you're saying governments, because this is not just a federal issue, but it's also provincial, or how does that work? That's right. So the federal government will have to, or may respond in some way, because the criminal code is a piece of federal law yeah. um, that's under the federal government's jurisdiction. Um, and, you know, that law is obviously affected. And if the government, the federal government wants to change the criminal code in some way, they, you know, will be free to do that. Right. But provincial um, uh, governments also have a, a hand in this. They have a, something to say, likely, because uh, health is a provincial jurisdiction mm -hmm. under the Constitution. So um, likely, at least in a regulatory sense, in terms of passing rules or systems or mechanisms uh, under which this will be available to people, that may well come under provincial okay. jurisdiction. I want to ask you about that, but but because that it's a health issue. Um, but before that, so so the law is being changed. What are some of the proposed changes? Well, that's where the vacuum comes in right now. The Supreme Court's decision um, doesn't put in place a new mechanism or any regulation for this. It's just said that um, physicians who assist people to die um, when they meet three conditions that are set out in the Supreme Court's decision cannot be charged under those two criminal code provisions. So there's no new mechanism or there are three rules. conditions, you're saying? The Supreme Court laid out three conditions that have to be met in order for um, physicians to be essentially excluded from being charged so under the like code. So this is like irremediable, irremediable yeah. suffering? So there, um, the person who has, um, I guess, received assistance in dying or in, suicide, in their suicide yes. has to show clear consent um, by a competent adult. Um, the adult has to be suffering from a grievous and irremediable medical condition yes. um, uh, that causes intolerable and enduring suffering to that person in their own circumstances. So it's so. kind of very general and very vague. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, so then the government or whoever has to f take those three conditions and write something that works. Well, those are the government, those are the Supreme Court's conditions. Okay. Um, it really is opening up, uh, they're saying that their decision um, or the protection, I guess, that they offer to doctors who um, provide assistance to patients who meet those conditions will be protected and not cannot be charged under those criminal code okay. provisions. Um, but it's still, it's really up to, for example, the federal government would be free to write um, a new provision into the criminal code that lays out their own proposed okay. mechanism or rules or conditions that physicians have to meet or that um, you know patients have to meet in order to access I this. See. So when we look at the rec recommendations or the proposal or the proposed changes, that's when you, what you're talking about. So because that's more than just three things, it's like nine pages. Absolutely. So I think um, you might be referring to recommendations that came recommendations. from the um, yeah. joint parliamentary committee that yes. was um, struck on this. Uh, their work was quickly <laughs> done, I think, yes. um, and released at the end of February, uh, wherein they made 21 recommendations to the House of Commons. So this is a committee um, struck by the federal government. There were members of Parliament and members of the Senate who were part of this committee, and they mm -hmm. heard some testimony um, from a wide variety of groups, of groups yeah. and then issued a report uh, recommending 21 items to the House of Commons yes. uh, while they go through this process of trying to determine how they are going to respond and what law they're going to put in place. So those recommendations from the, the Joint Committee are not law yet. Um, they're essentially what the committee thinks the Parliament, federal Parliament should uh, consider when they're going through this process. And in fact, by the time this interview airs, we might already know what the proposed law will be. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, any day now, we should yeah. <laughs> we should expect to hear hear something. Okay, um, let me also back up a little bit because, I mean, in 1993, I think a lot of our viewers might remember the Sue Rodriguez case, and maybe some people might have thought that that was kind of we took care of that. that mm -hmm. was, 20, 30, 30 years, no, 20 years, five years 23, ago. 23, so yeah. 23 years ago. Yeah. So how did we get from there to here? Yeah, I think um, that's 
a really common question because that case was um, very public and uh, there was just a na nationwide debate at that time yes. about whether this was going to um, going to change. And uh, so Sue Rodriguez um, brought this essentially the same um, case to ultimately to the Supreme Court. It was the same two criminal code provisions that she um, was uh, arguing violated the charter yes. and at that time the Supreme Court of Canada um, in a, a very tight decision five to four judges um, found that no those criminal code sections um, did not violate the charter and so yeah I think certainly people are surprised that um, but is it as simple as years, we have new judges today uh, well, certainly that's one of the big changes is that there's a new panel, but the court had to address that. Um, this, the British Columbia Supreme Court, where this most recent case started, yeah. had to address that. And at the British Columbia Supreme Court, um, a large volume of evidence was introduced um, mm -hmm. to the judge at that instance, um, which addressed the previous concerns that there was no way to sort of control um, or put in safeguards to right. continue to protect vulnerable people. Yeah. And um, there was certainly no evidence available to the court in 1993 on that issue because right. it hadn't been legal anywhere in the world so until that time. So in 1993, no Belgium, Holland, none of those countries? No, I think Oregon? 1993 was the really? year that perhaps the first European jurisdiction did put right. in some kind of rules. Um, in, into place. So there was no evidence before the court at that time. Interesting. Um, and there was, you know, a large volume this time around that ultimately the court, the trial judge at the Bre British Columbia Supreme Court did accept that evidence that there was um, mm -hmm. a way or there were mechanisms that you can put in place to prevent um, misuse of these provisions. So let me ask you, so those are what people call safeguards. Yes. And, and people talk about safeguards, they look at, at other countries or other jurisdictions, mainly the Netherlands and, and Belgium, I think, um, where some people will say, well, the safeguards do work. We can create a law that's going to make sure that it's not going to be misused. In your legal opinion, are safeguards useful or maybe not useful? Do they work? You know, I haven't studied how those other jurisdictions operate. Okay. Um, I'm certainly not an expert on kind of the medical processes that people have right. to travel through when they're trying to um, obtain a service like this. Um, I think that one of the, um, you know, certainly, and having said that, <laughs> um, I'm not an expert in this, I think that the, um, the mechanisms that are in place in the European jurisdictions are broader um, than they are, for example, in Oregon, Washington, Montana, where the laws are newer there again. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that the, a lot of the evidence that the court ended up accepting were from those American um, jurisdictions where uh, you know the laws haven't been in place for right. as long, but they've found and the court accepted that um, there is not a sufficient abuse of... Well, does the fact that we have this charter of rights here in Canada make it more difficult for the safeguards to work? Um, I'm not sure that there's an interplay between the safeguards no. and the charter. Um, the safeguards are more kind of procedural. Um, they're like, for example, a waiting period where if a person is asking for physician-assisted death, they kind of have to wait a certain amount of time before it's actually provided. They have to a number of doctors yes. have to sort of sign off and meet with the person and make sure that they're competent. So it's those kinds of safeguards that we're talking about. Okay, as opposed to what I was thinking, and maybe this is not a safeguard, it's a limitation perhaps, the age, age of age of consent, that right now the recommendation is that it's 18, but I know that's already been challenged and <laughs> we don't have a law yet. Well, the Supreme Court specifically stated that they their decision only applies to people over 18, so yes. competent adults over 18. Yes. Um, I think one of the surprising recommendations from the Joint Committee um, in, their, in their recommendations was that it ultimately be made available to what are called mature minors. Yes. Um, and that certainly was not something contemplated by the Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, the recommendation is in fact to ensure that 
um, it's made physician-assisted death is made available to mature minors within three years of the initial law being passed. Right. So um, I read an article in the newspaper just last weekend indicating that that recommendation in particular um, has uh, been a surprise to Canadians, and it uh, may demonstrate the line that even people who accept physician-assisted death might be on that that. Yeah. Uh, we're not ready for that. Well, yeah, that once you open the door, you've opened the door. Um, another limitation or safeguard, I don't even know if there's a distinction, um, involves uh, conscience rights that, a, that a, a medical practitioner, doctor or nurse should be able to refuse and not have to refer. Yeah. Where do we stand with that? Well, the Supreme Court, again, was clear in their decision um, in stating that nothing in their decision would require a doctor to assist someone else in, in committing um, physician-assisted yes. death or assisted suicide. Um, so, you know, there's some uncertainty about what that means. Does it mean, even under the Supreme Court's decision, does it mean that doctors have to provide a referral or assist someone to find a doctor who will help them? Yeah. Um, um, so that's not settled, um, but uh, you know, at least they recognize that that will be an issue. Um, the response to that so far from, for example, the Alberta College of Physicians and Surgeons has been to preserve physicians' conscience rights, okay. um, to say that no, they won't be compelled to provide the service, and I'm not sure that it's been settled as to whether they'll be required um, or encouraged to still provide a referral, because of course many doctors feel that providing a referral even is being complicit in, of um, in the action itself. So, and you mentioned that, that here in Alberta, a decision has been made that would be different in every province. Uh, certainly that would be up to each um, college. I think almost every province has its own college literally of, what's called <laughs> the yeah, College of Physicians and Surgeons. Um, so certainly that'll be up to each province. Um, and I'm not sure if there's still um, ongoing discussion or if even that policy has been completely finalized here, but um, certainly at this time, that's the message from the college here in Alberta. Is there, again, another safeguard or limitation that can be written so that people who, so that we can prevent this from happening to people without their consent? Well, I presume that that will be a strong element of the regulation, either from the provincial government or the, the federal government. Um, that's really the linchpin in a lot of legal um, tests. For mm -hmm. example, to write a will, you have to be competent. Right. Um, to write a personal directive or a, what's commonly known as a living will, you have to be competent. You have to um, understand what you're doing and um, have your wits about you kind of colloquially. Um, so certainly I presume that that will be a strong component of any um, of the regulations that will end up governing physician-assisted death. I'm just curious now because that's what the kind of law that you do. Have you been in situations where there have been dispute over the competence of a person when they wrote their will? Oh, absolutely, yeah. My practice includes um, estate planning, so I help people to prepare their wills, prepare their personal directives, prepare yeah. their enduring powers of attorney. Um, but I also am involved in um, court cases when you know there are complaints or concerns brought to the courts through lawsuits about whether the um, will is valid or the personal directive is valid. And um, I think that that's one of the ways that the court found, uh, that's one of the safeguards, for example, that okay. the court is sort of relying on um, doctors and lawyers to protect um, and ensure that when these decisions are made, they are only made by competent individuals. And so doctors are already are heavily involved in assessing competence. Yeah. Um, yeah, and even in the in, when a decision has to be made to withdraw care, which certainly is already available to doctors, yes. withdrawing or withholding yes. care or further treatment, um, that's not the kind of decision that went before the Supreme Court of Canada. Those are the that's the kind of work that doctors are already doing. Yeah. And so even when doctors are taking those kinds of instructions already from patients, uh, they have to assess their patient's um, competence, competence or yeah. ability to make those decisions. Yeah, how hard is that? <laughs> yeah, those uh, are very difficult yeah. matters where it's there's uh, concern. Absolutely. Um, I'm curious also about the issue. I mean, we're, we're talking about amending the criminal code, but we're also talking about something that seems to be a health jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. how, how, how do even those two things come together, 
Well, that's um, there are always fights between the province and the federal the provinces and the federal government on yes. jurisdictional issues. There's a wide body of law, constitutional law, wherein uh, you know provinces want to regulate in a certain area, and it sort of overlaps. Is and in, what, sorry, is that what happened in Quebec? Because in Quebec, this is already legal, but it's not. Yeah, Quebec had kind of right off the bat uh, put in place some uh, some procedures, and they've been operating and it's under their health <laughs> act. Yeah, yeah, um, and I, you know, I think that probably just because it's been in place and it's uh, maybe in that kind of period of uncertainty and almost a legal right. vacuum that that not, no issues have been made of that and Quebec's legal system is different as well so okay. um, and I'm certainly not, not an right. expert on that, do you uh, think that system that, that how much will the federal this this I guess I don't even know who's writing this law will look at what's happening in Quebec and and use that as a model is that and certainly I'm sure that all of the provinces are looking you know not necessarily to copy the Quebec model but yeah. certainly they're the the first out of the gate at least and yeah. uh, um, I'm sure that the provinces have at least looked at what Quebec has set up right okay and again to clarify so Federally, the criminal code has changed, but how that applies is, or how those, and I hate to call them services, are delivered mm -hmm. is a provincial jurisdiction. So that's why we have this. Right. And there will always be, and there often is, and even in other areas of law, like environment or, okay. you know, what have you, um, there's often an overlap between okay. what the federal government can pass laws about and what provinces um, yeah. kind of are in charge of. So that just has to be played out, essentially. Um, yeah. In this case, the government, the federal government's only um, kind of role in it probably likely will be uh, on the criminal code side, but um, the provinces, right. as you said, are going to be administering the health um, yeah. services. Yeah. And, and then uh, the other important body that we have to look at too is um, the medical regulatory body, so College of Physicians and Surgeons, the nurses, the pharmacists, they're all going to be involved in whatever um, requirements or mechanisms they or rules for their own profession that they put in place will affect how Albertans, for example, again, access this service. Yeah. How much is language a part of this? So that because uh, we they're calling it medically or physician-assisted death. Or the dying? Supreme Court calls it physician-assisted death or dying. Would that include both euthanasia and assisted suicide. That includes um, voluntary euthanasia and uh, physician-assisted so suicide. Euthanasia, euthanasia being the doctor actually kills the patient. That's right. So and it's an important distinction to be. Um, to continue to um, specify that this is voluntary euthanasia because yes. euthanasia as its own term um, is the killing of another person with or without their consent. Their consent right. So people may also remember the story of Robert Latimer yes. from the 1990s in Saskatchewan who Tracy. yes, euthanized his daughter Tracy. Yes. She was 12, year old, 12 years old, I believe. Severely disabled. Severely disabled. And um, euthanasia also um, include in the definition Would of euth include euthanasia includes yeah. a, an intention of mercy. Um, but the, but the, none of this is even using any of that language because the word euthanasia is nowhere anywhere to be found and the word suicide is nowhere ever to be found. It's medically right. assisted dying. So physician and the, the terms were defined um, in this uh, case that ended up between, before the Supreme Court of Canada. The Supreme Court itself didn't define the terms that it was using, but it used okay. the same terms and defini uh, presumably definitions that were developed and um, used in the British Columbia Supreme Court. And so yeah. it's that case from which we say that physician-assisted dying includes both physician-assisted euthanasia, wherein the physician actually um, applies or provides the right. um, the drug cocktail in this case, as well as a doctor providing a prescription which the person can, um, can take, take themselves. themselves. Yeah. Wow, there's a lot here, but I think this is this has been very helpful. So, what what happens now? You said that we're waiting. Um, we're waiting until June sixth, um, at which point the criminal code will not apply to any doctors who assist people yes. um, with their um, to die. Yes. And, and hopefully by then we'll have... And hopefully by then we'll have more um, 
rules in place, again, from the doctors, from the pharmacists, from the right. provincial governments, and from the federal government. But in the meantime, people have already accessed physician-assisted death yes. uh, because the um, Supreme Court of Canada allowed or sort of said that they can, in the meantime, between February 6th and June 6th, they can make an application to the court in, right. in whichever province they reside to ask a court for an order to um, allow them to have a physician assist them in dying. And in fact, that's being used in Alberta already. Okay, and then in closing, I, I think I want to remind people, and of course this is what you do, but if people are concerned about uh, it, directives, they should make sure that they have a living will. Absolutely. Um, there in Alberta, we refer to them as a personal directive. Mm -hmm. um, it's unclear as to whether you'll be able to um, include, for example, if you want to access a physician-assisted death, we're not sure if you'll be able to do that in advance okay. through a, a personal directive. Not, yeah. But if you don't want that to happen to you, make sure that your personal directive is clear on that. And the other thing too is make sure you're having that conversation in your family. Yes. That's almost the most important element of this. Even when people do have their written documents, we certainly recommend and need people to do that. Mm -hmm. But you also need to talk to your family and to the people people that you're naming as uh, yes. who will be ultimately making those decisions if you yourself lose the competence to do that. Yeah. You need to make sure that you're giving those alternate decision makers mm -hmm. um, the information that they will need to confidently make those decisions for you. You need to protect them in that way. Um, yes. So it's good. critical. Yes, that's good advice. <laughs> Kate, thank you very much for your time and for your expertise and for all this information that I'm sure we'll still be processing in the months to come. Um, I've been speaking with Kate Fott. She's a lawyer with uh, McLennan Ross here in Edmonton. We've been speaking about the legal aspects of end-of-life issues as, as they pertain to Canada right now. We're taping this program in in April 2016. If you have any questions about any of this or about anything you hear in this program, you can send them to us via Facebook or comments and, and via Twitter. That was a conversation I had with lawyer Kate Fought in Edmonton in April 2016. Remember that you can always listen to all our programs at our website, saltandlighttv.org radio, and you can always comment by reaching me via Facebook or Twitter at DeaconPedroGM. After speaking with Kate, I spoke with disability rights activist Mark Pickup. Hi, I'm Sarah Kroger. Hi, this is Joe Zambone. Hi, this is Curtis Stevens. Hi, this is Father Rob Gallia. Hi, I'm Amanda Vernon. What's up? It's Joe Melendrez. Hey, I'm Tori Harris. I'm Krista. I'm Lisa. And I'm Teresa Hansen. And, and we're Sarah. Hey, this is Marie Miller. Hi, I'm Rebecca Rubion, and you're listening to the Salt and Light Hour the with Salt and Light Pedro. Hour with and you Deacon are listening Pedro. To Salt and Light Hour with And you're Deacon listening Pedro. to the Salt and Light Hour with Deacon Pedro. We are doing a series on end-of-life issues. And my guest today is someone for whom the topics of euthanasia and assisted suicide are very close. Mark Pickup. It's so, so great to finally meet you. We've sort of met on cyberspace. Yes, we have. Now, we, now finally face to face. Face to face. Now you live with multiple sclerosis. I do. I Tell do. me about and that. And have, well, I've lived with it for 33 years now. Um, I was diagnosed in 1984 at the age of 30. Mm -hmm. um, it was a huge shock. I, I can remember waking up one morning and I, ha I couldn't feel anything from my waist down. It's like I had a spinal anesthetic. Um, uh -huh. I could walk okay, but I, I just couldn't feel anything. Yeah. Couldn't feel hot from cold or sharp from blunt. And I uh, went to the doctor and he thought I had a pinched nerve. And uh, so he sent me off for some physical therapy. I, could, I can't remember what it was now, but some sort of therapy. and. Um, it went away, uh, and then two years later, I got it again. And this is, by this time, I was 30 years old. So the first one was when I was 28. Yeah. Uh, the second one at 30, and same thing, numb from the waist down. And uh, so I went to my physician, and uh, he again thought it was a, a pinched nerve. But then overnight, I lost the use of my right arm. At that point, the, the, everything changed. They initially thought it was a brain tumor. Uh -huh. um, but eliminated that, eliminated a number of other things. And at that time, 30 years ago, it was really the elimination of other things. And eventually right. you were only left with MS. And uh, so they did what they called a lumbar puncture, where they looked for certain proteins in the, in the spinal fluid. Mm -hmm. They know what healthy spinal fluid looks like, and they know what, this, what, what MS looks like. 
And so the diagnosis was MS. Uh, it was as though somebody had kicked me in the chest. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. So, because you were so young, because you thought, what's my life going to be? Sort of what was going through your there, head? There was a point? small thing that happened uh, two years earlier. Um, when the first time that I got the, the numbness, that was in, during the 1982 uh, recession. Yeah. And there wasn't a lot of jobs around, and I was out of work. So I spent, my daily job was out there beating the pavement trying to find work. Um, one day I, I got home from my daily job search, and my, my wife said, uh, these, uh, this fellow called from some organization, they wanted to come in for an interview, which puzzled me, because um, I didn't remember sending them a resume. But, uh, I mean, I had no other job prospects, so I went in. And I can actually remember sitting in, in the uh, waiting room wondering what this numbness in my legs was. So I went into the interview, and it was the strangest interview I've ever had, despite me telling them I knew nothing about the disease that they were representing, and, mm -hmm. and despite me telling them that I probably wasn't the best person for them, they offered me jo uh, the job at the exact amount that I, I knew I needed to, to feed a wife and two children. Yes. And uh, they offered me the job of uh, client services coordinator for the MS Society of Edmonton. Really? And I can remember looking and I could see this resume on, their, on the desk of the chairman of the board. And so finally, curiosity got the better of me and I, and I said, uh, uh, can you tell me where you got that resume? And he said, you know, it's the strangest thing. We, we were moving our offices and the movers came in to pull out the filing cabinets. And we heard this thunk. You're not gonna believe this, give me a Bible, it's true. Yes. Uh, he said, we heard a thunk <laughs> on the other side of it and I, I reached back, saw it was something and I brought it, it was her resume. And we looked at it and said, What's, We've got the stuff, the sort of skills we need. So they looked up my number and information and called me. Apparently, at a number of years earlier, I had applied for the job of executive director of the MS Society. And mm -hmm. I don't know, somebody was filing them, and my, my resume fell off the back, and there it sat for five years. Wow. So they had this old one, and that's, that's what, in fact, uh, was their basis to give me the call. I took that job, and I saw the very worst of MS. Um, I can remember there was, there was a woman, she was 42 years old, six months into the diagnosis, she was already wheelchair bound. Her husband said, I don't need this stuff, I'm out of here. Really? And he took their only daughter with him. So there she sat, she, it was just her, and, and she wanted to die. And, and I can remember, all I could do was look at my shoes. Um, but I saw this stuff all the time. I, there, was a young, uh, there was a dad came in and he's, his 18 year old daughter, had, she was bedridden with MS and he came in to, the, to talk to me and he said, I hear about remissions. She's gonna have a remission, won't she? She will, won't she? And I couldn't guarantee that. It depends are, yes, they will, but they don't always happen. And it was a good thing I didn't say anything because she was wheelchair bound at nine months, bedridden at 12 months, blind at 18 months, dead at two years. I saw this stuff every week. So you knew what was in store. I for couldn't you. take it. I, I I quit that job after six months, and uh, I went to the cushy federal civil service, and uh, went on. And then I didn't have this uh, numbness for the two years. Shoot forward those two years, and that that comes the time when the diagnosis happened. Right. So for people who are not uh, familiar with the disease, uh, tell us a little bit about what it does. It's neurological. It's a neurological disease of unknown cause. Uh, it's incurable. Uh, what happens is the, the nervous system, well, every nerve is coated with a fatty tissue called myelin. Mm -hmm. And what happens is, the, for this unknown reason, the body attacks that. It thinks it's okay. a, a, a foreign yeah, yeah. substance, and it attacks it. What happens, of course, is, is the myelin swells, and it cuts off part or all of the message of the nerve. Okay. Then when the, the, the swelling will go down, you may get your, your, your movement back or the, the function back. But with each time that it swells, it begins to scar, thus the word sclur. Uh -huh. And it hap what happens is it'll happen throughout the body multiple times. So you have multiple sclerosis. I get it. And as time goes on, this, it begins to scar, and those scars create plaques, and those plaques are permanent. So what may in fact manifest itself as a, an episodic disease where you have attacks and remissions, you find that usually with each attack you get less motion less. So when you come out. Uh -huh. 
30 years ago, they had no way of treating that. The, oh, the best they could do was symptom management, try to bring down the swelling with steroids and that kind of thing. Today, they have so, some very good management tools to medications. Still not a cure, but some very good medications we didn't have back then. Yeah. Now, you, you said, obviously, you, you've, you lose motion or movement. You could lose eyesight, for example. Is there pain involved? Well, there is. There, you mentioned uh, the eye. There is what they call, with neuritis, there is very often uh, eye pain. And when I had neuritis, yes, there oh, was really? pain. It, would, it hurt to move your eyes, that kind of thing. Um, so how it, it manifested itself with me is I would go to bed at night not knowing what function I would wake up with or really? without. So, and the disease was so wild. Um, it was so raucous. It was up and down, up and down. You know, I'd lose the ability to walk, um, get, get it back or part of it back. I would lose the, the use of my right arm and, and get it back. That was important to me because I was an artist. Of course. I was also a musician. And uh, my, as I say, my eyesight was affected. Um, sensation was affected. Um, bowel and bladder function was affected. Uh, speech and hearing was affected. And hearing doesn't very often, but it, it did with me. Yeah. Um, and I can remember, just a short story here, that about, ooh, this was maybe two years into it, I, I suddenly lost my speech and I, I was just basically frothing. I, I, I couldn't say anything, no one could understand anything, and I was so embarrassed by it. I was sitting in the, in this, in the darkened family room, I wouldn't even turn on the lights. Mm -hmm. And a fellow that lived about three doors down, he was a carpenter, his name was Wally. Um, he came over to visit, and he came down into the, uh, to the family room, and he sat there, and he simply said, I, I, don't, I don't know what to say, but I just wanted to be with you. You know, that man, just by his presence, gave me more therapy than any psychologist or therapist could have done. The point being, it is absolutely crucial that we be with people in their suffering. Yeah. No, we I walk don't. with them. Yeah. Even if, we, if you say nothing, not even to be afraid of silence itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that story up because that's what I've heard that, you know, I mean, you're my friend, all of a sudden you have this thing that I don't even know what it is, I don't know what to say to you, I stop calling, I stop visiting, and what yeah. you need is my support. Yeah, and that's true. It's, it, there's an old song that uh, I'll paraphrase that uh, it wasn't the friends who were unkind, they were just hard to find. Yes, yes. Um, I can honestly say that not one friend that I had back then do I still have. I have, well, I have a really? set of friends. And I, to be kind to them, they, they didn't know how to deal with it, so they, they didn't deal with it. Yeah. They just stayed away. Um, the mark they knew was healthy, he was athletic, he was uh, mob, mob, uh, mobile. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and this new, new Man wasn't that. No, no. And so they, they couldn't deal with it, so they didn't, they didn't deal with it. So you're, you're diagnosed with this thing, your friends are not visiting anymore, you're obviously depressed. At about the two to three year point, my, uh, my sorrow was so deep, my heartache, so sharp, that my thinking became clouded. And, and this is a segue into a really important point that when people's judgment is clouded, when their grief is so profound, that is not the time to be starting to make decisions. You always make not. bad decisions. Of course. If I had not been surrounded by the love of my wife, my faith community, and my God, I may have taken my life at a low point. Mm -hmm. But I never would have known my grandchildren if I had done that. I have five wonderful grandchildren. They love me and I love them. And I never would have known them mm -hmm. if I had made that choice back then. You see, the point is, we do not know what tomorrow will bring. The grief that was absolutely intolerable and unacceptable yesterday becomes tolerable today and becomes acceptable tomorrow. Yeah. Do I wish it was different? Absolutely. Do I wish I was back the way I was? Yes. But that whole point is it hooks into a grief process mm -hmm. that we must go through, and when, particularly when you're dealing with, with something like adult-acquired disability. Yeah. The mark that was is gone, as surely as if he died. There is, if I'm willing to accept it, if I'm willing to cross this, this river of grief 
grief is like a river. Yeah, it yes. cuts through our lives. It, it'll cut through everyone's life. Everyone will be affected by grief. You may be going through grief now, or you may have gone through grief, or you're about to go through grief, or you'll go through grief in the future, but you will, go, you will grieve. And how you respond to that grief is critical to your humanity mm -hmm. and to who you are and how it affects those around you. If I had chosen suicide back when my grief was at its worst, it wouldn't affect just me. It wasn't a decision, an autonomous decision of Mark. Yes. It always affects other people. It would affect my wife, your my children, children, my grandchildren, my doctor, because I'll ask her yes, to stop being yes. my healer and become my killer. Yes. It'll affect my society. Yes. By helping to entrench the notion that there is such a thing as a life that is not worth living. I do not have that right. Yes. Uh, th that yes. brings us to a point of autonomy. <laughs> yes. That is the, the, the new ideal. Everybody wants to be autonomous. I am my own destiny. But you cannot have autonomy and also have community. You cannot have independence and also have interdependence. You must choose. You can't have up and down, hot and cold at the same time. It is one of those either or things. You can either be I, me, mine, and my autonomy, and that's all that matters, or you can be responsible to the community yes. and even posterity, yes. the future. Yes. If I decide to kill myself, it will put in peril those who are yet to come. Mm -hmm. I do not have that right. I still have a responsibility to the common good, to the society in general. We are not autonomous. We are interdependent. Mm -hmm. Words like family, neighbor, community, nation, attest to the fact that we are interdependent, not independent. Mm -hmm. We need to get away from this notion that I am autonomous. You know, John Donne, had a very famous quote, and he, you, you may remember it, he said, never send to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. That the death of, an indi of any individual affects me because I'm part of mankind. Mm -hmm. This is what he was getting at, is that we're not, and part of his quote was, every man is a part of the continent, a piece of the main. Yes. Any man's death diminishes me because I am part of mankind. Therefore, never send to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. That's what I'm talking about. Yes. We are not independent little islands. Yes. We are part of a whole. Yes. Yeah, and, and I mean, you've touched on all the you know, issues here from autonomy, freedom, um, support, grief, suffering, control. The law in Canada will probably change. It will change. It will change. Even the fact that we're having this conversation and you've been, I mean, the law is changing now, but you've been an activist in this area for many years. I've known you about you for 12 years. You, how does this make you feel? You know, you're a person who lives with a d disability. Here's the law saying that October 12th, October 2012, the Parliament of Canada gave unanimous support to the idea of a national suicide prevention strategy, and that included our current Prime Minister, who gave that to his full support. Mm -hmm. So you mean suicide a prevention yes. strategy? For, yes. They gave that the full support. What happened to it, we don't know yet. But that they gave support. They thought that was worth supporting. Not more than 18 months later, the Supreme Court of Canada again gives unanimous support Sorry. to the idea of assisted suicide for people with disabilities or sickness or conditions. Yes. So let me get this straight. If you're healthy and you're able-bodied and you're suicidal, you get suicide prevention. Yes. If the sick or the disabled are suicidal, we help they them. get death. Yes. Not only do they get death, we'll help them do it. Yes. That's the kind of society we're in now. Whatever happened to equality? Whatever happened to universal human rights where we all stand equal before the law? 
Because what someone like me sees is my country is saying is that my life is worth less than the able-bodied and the healthy person. Mm -hmm. And not only that, the polls show that 80% of Canadians agree with it. Obviously, you, <laughs> you don't agree with that. Obviously, you find value in your life. You find dignity and worth in your life. This is madness. But how do you have that conversation with some, You're a person of faith. You're a Christian. You're a Catholic. Yes, I am. Some people are not. How do you have that conversation with someone who, for whom they, they just can't, they, you know, I get my dignity from the fact that I'm a child of God. I talked a minute ago about autonomy versus community. Yes. It does not take a person of faith to realize that we also have, we may have rights, but we also have responsibilities. Yes. We have, do you want independence and autonomy? Because another word for that is the jungle, the law of the jungle. It doesn't take a person of faith to understand that. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. My worth comes from, from the knowledge that I am made in the image of God. And so is everyone else. Whether they believe it or not, yeah. Whether they believe it or not, it's irrelevant. Yeah. They are. Yeah, yeah. And it is an enlightened society that lifts up people yeah. when they're at their lowest point and they've ceased to believe that they have any value, especially then. Mm -hmm. That is what enlightenment is. It isn't killing each other. Mm -hmm. We want to get away from that. Mm -hmm. The violence of autonomy. Yeah. There's so, this is, there's so much we could be talking about, and, and it's so personal, obviously, for you. I mean, I'm not, I mean, everybody has disabilities. I suppose we can make that argument, but I'm not disabled. I don't have a chronic illness. I don't have a terminal illness. This it, it could not be on, even on my radar. There's so many Canadians that don't even know that this is happening. Okay, let's talk about something else that's really important to talk about. The freedom of conscience, religious liberty. Yes. This new regime that's coming in is going to require doctors to either participate or refer. Mm -hmm. Referring, you're still complicit in the murder, aren't you? Mm -hmm. Medical killing is something that we deplored it was something that happened in another time. My father's generation fought to stop that kind of a regime. We're moving in that direction and not a shot's been fired. Mm -hmm. We have to understand that when people are suicidal, we have to come beside them. We have to become community. We have to help them search mm -hmm. for life with dignity. Well, incidentally, let's talk about death with dignity. That's a big one. Yes, it's, yes. Right Let me tell you something about death with dignity. It is not found at the end of a needle or in poison. Death with dignity, it has been my experience, is the end result of having lived with dignity. It is a process, not an event. Yeah. And obviously you find that you're living your life with dignity. Even though at one time I thought that, that could not be so. You thought that. And through the help of your support of your community, concern, your, your family, community of other people, your doctors. My doctors, people who lifted my value up even when I doubted my own value. Yes. Yes. They allowed me to say some very outrageous things and they understood. Mm-hmm that pain can make people say unthinkable, but they didn't hold me to a death wish that I might have sought if I had been at my lowest point. Happily, I didn't do that. Now, you obviously live with this disease. Your condition will likely get worse. Mm -hmm. And there will be people who say, look, this poor man, he doesn't even have quality of life anymore. That's by their standard. Yeah. Let me tell you something about quality of life. When I was 25, if someone had said to me, Within a few short years, you will be in a wheelchair. You'll lose your health. You'll lose your career. I would have said, there's no quality of life in that. Mm -hmm. But yet today, at 63, my life does have quality. Why? 
the standard for quality of life changed. Today, what gives my life quality is to love and to be loved. And to think I still have a contribution to make, however foolish that thought may be. Mm -hmm. Maybe in closing, Mark, um, what would you say to that person that is struggling with this? Maybe they're alone, maybe they have a chronic illness, maybe they're in pain, emotional or physical, social. What would you like them to know? First of all, there is a God, a God of love. A God of love that desperately wants to know you. He is there for you and there is we have wonderful agencies within the, within the church that will seek to help return people to a life with dignity when they don't believe it's possible anymore. Mm -hmm. There is a community waiting to embrace you. It's there for the asking. Yeah. People like you, thank you. Um, Mark Pickup, he's a, I don't think of you as an activist, but I guess you are a disability activist. You're a you're a man of faith, you're a blogger. You can read all about uh, Mark's uh, adventures, if I can call them that, at his blog, humanlifematters.org. Org, yep. And you're always posting new things. Mark is also available at events and speaking, and he is part of the Every Life Matters series that is being uh, sponsored by the Archdiocese of Edmonton, which is why we're here. It's been a great pleasure meeting you in person, you Mark. Too. Yes, thank you very much for what you're doing, and. Let's pray for each other. Good. Thank you. That was a conversation I had with Mark Pickup in Edmonton in April 2016. To watch this and other interviews on this topic, visit our website, saltandlighttv.org, and look for Catholic Focus. And at that website is also where you can find our series on euthanasia and assisted suicide titled Every Life Matters. Remember to send me your comments via Facebook and Twitter at Deacon Pedro GM. Thank you for being with us. I'm Deacon Pedro, and this has been a special End of Life Issues edition of the Salt and Light Hour. <laughs>